Good morning, everybody. It is great to see everybody this morning. And to kick off, we are actually going to get a running start at this. Uh, we're going to start in 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. And then we're going to move through chapter 4. Verse 24, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. God has given us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, as a kind of a helper or a comforter, and that idea is encapsulated in the Greek word parakletos, and that is used uh, many times, we saw it used of Jesus as our advocate earlier in 1 John, and this is the spirit that God gives us as his children. And we see here in verse 4 now, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So when we talk about this Spirit of God... um, Uh, obviously John is saying that there are spirits that are not of God because he tells us to test the spirits. And here this test is in the present perfect. So we are to test and keep testing. We are to be continually testing these spirits to see where they are from. Um, It it does say of God, and that of is ek. It just means out of. Uh, So God is a source of the spirit that we're talking about. If God finds it comfortable to abide in us, his spirit within us, something has changed from what we were. If he is now comfortable in us, he wouldn't have been comfortable in us before we came to know Christ. There had to have been a fundamental change, a new creation in that. So... Since he does abide in us through his spirit, we know that we are changed. And we are no longer who we were. We're no longer that fleshly creature that was before we came to know Christ. Uh, He's made us new, and since God is holy, he does not commune with darkness. He has no place with darkness. And so since he is within us, we know that He has cleansed us from all unrighteousness by the blood of the Lamb. If you remember back in Exodus 11 and 12, I believe it was, uh, the Passover was instituted. And we saw God commanding the Israelites to apply the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts and lintel. And that is signifying the application of Christ's blood on our lives. When the Israelites applied the blood of the lamb, they were passed over by the angel. And the firstborn son was not killed. And in the same way, when we apply the blood of the lamb to our lives, then we are passed over by death. It can't touch us. Um, and that is exactly the, the work that Jesus has accomplished. We can no longer be affected by death. Um, we are destined to eternal life with God. And we see that sentiment. We saw it last week in chapter 3, and we, you really see it all throughout the Bible, back in Exodus, Passover, and then all throughout the redemptive story. 
Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. It's easier to spot a false prophet when they outright deny everything that you believe. When they deny the truth of the word of God, its inerrancy and the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's easier to identify that, right? But the danger comes when someone teaches things that are mostly true. Yeah. So when somebody professes something that sounds great, they, they make it sound good, uh, they tickle your ears, as it said, um, that makes it more difficult to spot them but it doesn't make them any less dangerous. It actually makes them more dangerous because they're difficult to spot. Um, But we see, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So those false teachers that are not proclaiming Jesus Christ to have come in the flesh to the earth and satisfied God's wrath, those are the false teachers that we're identifying here. Um, And John says that this is the spirit of the Antichrist. And if we look at that word Antichrist, it's Antichristos in the Greek, the prefix anti comes from the Greek language, and it has a couple of meanings to it. So the first one is opposed to. So anti, opposed to. The second is in the place of, or a substitute for. Now, we do see that the Antichrist will fulfill both of these definitions. So he will be opposed to Christ, but he will also be putting himself in the place of Christ. It will be Uh, all of the above. Um, And uh, we see in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, it says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So here, the Antichrist is setting himself up as God. He is trying to create this counterfeit image to place him in God's place. Satan is a great counterfeiter, and we see it all throughout history. He rips off the things of God and perverts them to his own gain. Um, You see many examples throughout the Bible, and uh, the Antichrist is a huge one. Uh, This is a big part of the deception that's going to be playing in during these last days. And I, I don't expect that the Antichrist is going to openly present himself as the satanic figure that he is. Um, We see in 2 Corinthians, I believe it is, that um, even Satan comes as an angel of light, and he's able to change into that appearance, although that's not who he is. 
And I think that his son, the Antichrist, again, it's a perversion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, I believe that the Antichrist will package himself benevolently. Um, he won't make it known who he is right away. Um, and just present himself as this sort of a savior and with good intentions, of course. Um, so we need to remember what John is saying here, that any spirit who professes that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh is the spirit of the Antichrist. Um, so I do think that, that that's going to be a big key moving forward. Um, we... Well, John saw the Gnostics in his day, they were professing that Jesus only came in spirit, that there was no bodily presence of Jesus on the earth. Uh, and we've talked about that, I know we talked about it in chapter 1, but um, John is still speaking to that specific heresy here, um, and it applies to things that we're seeing today. So verse 4 you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, we love to use the second part of this verse uh, in several different ways. Uh, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that's fine as long as it's fitting in the context that you're using it in. Um, but it is specifically referencing um, you overcoming uh, the deceptions of false teachers because he is greater in you than he who is in the world. So uh, that's an important little distinction there. But the, re the weast renders this verse as you have gained a complete victory over them and are still victors because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And we see uh, the Weist expounding on the tenses here. So uh, he says that you have overcome the world and you are still overcomers, okay? And I know a lot of times we, we can roll out of bed with a headache and we are kind of down on ourselves and we don't feel like overcomers, right? It's kind of difficult to have that feeling, but luckily it doesn't mention any feelings in here. Uh, your being an overcomer is not predicated on whether you feel like an overcomer or not. That was settled at the cross when Christ defeated death. So we have overcome that, and it doesn't matter if we feel like we've overcome it or not. They are of the world. Therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So we saw in chapter 3, uh, it says that the world does not know us because it does not know him. So they're two diametrically different things. And now we see that in a more abstract sense, the world does not speak the same language that we do. We speak fundamentally different languages. And if you take a look, uh, I think this is really interesting, but what does it take to make a language work? It takes a sender, so somebody has to send a message. It takes a receiver, someone has to receive that message. And it takes some sort of a code or a common understanding over the meaning of a certain sound, right? 
So if I say pizza, then you automatically know, because we speak the same language, that I'm talking about mostly, usually a round piece of food with cooked dough, some cheese, maybe some tomato sauce, just not pineapples. And, <laughs> and um, so we have that understanding in common. So if I say, I ate the pizza, you know exactly what I'm saying, because each of those words conveys a meaning to you. Well, the world does not understand the meaning of this foreign love, this agape love that God demonstrates to us. So there's not that common understanding. They don't understand what we understand in the way that we understand it. And we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Again, uh, Paul kind of says the same thing in a different way. He says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. That spiritual code, the, the knowing, the intuitive knowledge that the Spirit gives us when he indwells us, is not present in an unbeliever. So they cannot intuitively know the spiritual things that a believer is talking about. It's only by the Holy Spirit's work in their lives that they come to know that. So verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, nor for God is love. I'm going to read that again because I kind of messed it up. Verse 8, he, does not, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So back up to verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Again, we see that of, that's ek, out of, or God is a source of love, the source of love. Um, and again, it is agape love that we're talking about. It's not phileo or eros. Um, it is that self-sacrificial love. So if God is the source of love, then we can demonstrate that love by showing it to other people. And we'll see in just a second, no one has got, seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. We demonstrate that love to other people, and they can see the love of God. Verse 8, uh, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is an important distinction. God is love. Love is not God. It doesn't work the other way around. People will try to place love in the place of God. And, you know, the, the whole movement of the 60s, free love, um, that's not, not quite it. And we see kind of that sentiment echoed today. Uh, it's at work in America right now, and we see love being placed in God's place. And it doesn't work like that. In fact, I would argue that uh, the love of the 60s, the free love movement, is talking about fundamentally a different kind of love. And unfortunately, we don't have that distinction in English. 
but in the Greek you have the phileo, the eros, and the agape. The free love movement, I would say, is more geared towards eros. It's a physical kind of attraction. It's not a self-sacrificial love. So it is important to um, understand that distinction, and you'll see it in the world. Uh, love, everybody, you know, which is true, but not in their language. In our language, it's true. In the language of God, His Spirit, we are to agape, to love everyone self-sacrificially. So we do want to make that distinction um, as we move forward. And God is loving. That is a characteristic of God. It's one of His chief characteristics. Um, But in saying that, we don't want to elevate any single characteristic of God to the detriment of any others. Because if we have a God that is only loving and is not just, then where do we land? It doesn't get us to the right place. He demonstrates his love, and he makes that known to us. And we'll see how he does that in just a second. So verse 9 through 11. Now, before I read this, uh, do you remember... I believe it was Peter that said, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. This is the reason for the hope that is in me. These next few verses, it sums it up so nicely. So as we read these, think about that. Verse 9, In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So that is a great statement of doctrine. Um, We read that and we place the faith that we have in this story. That is the redemptive story of Christ. Before we loved God, he loved us. While we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. Have you ever just taken a second and pondered on that love that God has for us? When I do, I always get extremely emotional because it's very difficult to conceptualize that love. It's something that is not familiar to us. Um... If you've ever thought about the restraint that it took God to not reach down to the earth and stop the suffering that was happening to his son, have you thought about that restraint? Because he had the power to do so, but he chose not to. His love for you outweighed his desire for his son to not suffer like he did. Have you ever had a family member, maybe a son or daughter, even your parents, and you had to see them suffer? Uh, That's that's a pretty common thing in our world. And I will tell you, um, I think most of you have met or at least know my brother Chaney. Well, a few years ago, he was in an ATV accident, and... Uh, thankfully, I thank God 
that he was wearing a helmet because he probably wouldn't be with us if he was not. But this accident ended up breaking both of his femurs and one of his arms. And he had a bad concussion, uh, had to get surgery, and they reconstructed him. And he's doing fine now, but um, I remember one of the first things that they did when they brought him to the hospital was put him in traction. So if you're not familiar with that term, um, I wasn't back then. Um, Traction is when they take the leg, so the femur was broken like this, they pull the leg and they slide the bone back down into its place. So that's an extremely painful uh, situation to be in. Um, He said that that was actually the worst pain of the whole experience was when they were putting him in traction. But once they got him there, uh, he said it felt very relieving to to have his bones back in the right place. But um, I distinctly remember, and I don't think that I will ever forget, um, him screaming when they were pulling his leg back into place. And there was nothing more that I wanted in that moment than to stop than to stop his suffering. And I can't imagine. He was just my brother. He wasn't even my son. Um, I can't imagine the love of a father towards a son. But there was one very, very big difference between what I was experiencing and what God experienced as his son suffered. I could do nothing about that. I didn't have the power to stop Cheney's suffering. But God does have the power to stop the suffering of his son. And he chose not to. And it was this self-sacrificial agape love that allowed him to do so. And I don't understand that. But I embrace it. So that's the love that we're talking about when we talk about loving our brothers. That's the evidence that we have the Spirit working in our lives. Verse 12, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. Here in the beginning of verse 12, John is talking about no one has seen God at any time. He's talking about God in His glorified state. God in all of His glory. No one has ever seen that. Um, You remember Moses um, asked to see God, and God granted him uh, some sight of him. But Moses had to hide in the cleft of a rock um, so that the glory of God would not overwhelm him. So he hid, God passed by him, and Moses saw what I would call the afterglow of God. And uh, so that was not actually seeing God in all of his glory. John says that no one has seen God at any time. But if we do love one another with this self-sacrificial love, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. So that tells me no one has seen God in his glorified state, but if we love people in the same way that God loves us, then people will be able to see the love of God through us. 
And that's very important as we go out into the world. Uh, we're to demonstrate that love to other people. Um, and we see especially we are to demonstrate that love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, when the Bible says brethren, that's what it's talking about in this context. It's talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 13, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. So by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Remember back in chapter 1, uh, John says that he sees, he's heard, he is handled, he's gazed upon Jesus. This is uh, a nod back to that. Uh, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. John has seen Jesus. He's handled him. Um, again, going back to that physicality of Jesus on the earth. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Verse 17, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. John saying that we as children of God have this free speech. We can go to God and we are not concerned about his wrath because it's already been settled. Um, that is to his children who have the spirit who have been regenerated through Christ. We can humbly come before him and make requests and on that day of judgment, we do not have fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. So we don't fear the fiery wrath of God because it's already been settled. Um, so that's kind of what it's saying here, that we have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Uh, and this also goes back to his love for Jesus is the same love that he has for us. As far as he is concerned, as far as the Father is concerned, you are either washed, you're completely absolved of every sin, or you're not. There's no middle ground. There's no saying, I'm a pretty good person. I think I can ride this one out. That doesn't work. You're either, it's very black and white. You're either saved, you're covered in the blood, or you're not. Again, back to that Exodus 11 and 12, the Passover. You either have the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost, or you did not. Uh, there was no partial application. Um, and it is notable that they, the Israelites had to apply that blood. They couldn't simply acknowledge that someone who applied the blood would be passed over. They had to take the blood and apply it themselves. Verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Now, 
when we say fear, we're not talking about the righteous fear of God. That is a healthy fear. If you had a dad who you feared, I hope that that was in a constructive way. There's two different types of fear. There's one, and here it references torment. Fear involves torment. So if you're being tormented, that's a fear that is not healthy, that's not good for you. But there's a different fear, a fear of authority. It's a respect. So that is good to have, especially towards God. We have to have a certain amount of respect when we approach him. Um, We fear him for who he is. If I was walking down the street and I spit on a random person, you know, that'd be bad, but he'd probably just get mad and walk away. I'd probably do the same. There probably wouldn't be any consequences. So I wouldn't have that fearful reverence of that person. But if the president was strolling down the, the street and I spit on him, there probably would be some kind of action taken against me because of who he is. So I should respect him for who he is and not spit on him. And in the same way, we respect God for who he is. And we do our very best not to sin against him. And it's not predicated on what you're doing necessarily as much as it is who you're doing it against. God is perfect and holy. And any sin at all is enough to permanently separate us from him, from his presence. So we have to be careful um, in that fear. It's not a tormentive fear. It's a respectful, reverent fear. And so here we are specifically talking about the fear that involves torment. And in love and in God, since God is love, we do not experience any of that fear. We love him because he first loved us. Again, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is the reason that we know God loves us. We don't know God's love. Gnosko, it's an experiential knowledge. We have not experienced God's love because he gives us a nice car, because he blesses us with a nice big mansion, not even health. We don't know God's love because he gives us health. He gives us those things, and those are great things, but he also takes them away, and it rains on the wicked and the just alike. So we we can't place God's love in one of those things. That's not how he's demonstrated it to us. All great things, but not how we know this self-sacrificial love. He's already demonstrated it. It's not predicated on anything in the future, but predicated on the sacrifice that he made in the past. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I was an enemy of God before I was saved. It's very black and white. I was not neutral. And God stepped down into the world and reached out to me. He gave me that little twinge in my innermost being, that he was the only way. The Holy Spirit touched my life and transformed me while I was an enemy of God. So by that, 
it is only through that that we know experientially the love that God has for us. He's demonstrated it in sending his son to die on the cross. Now, we can talk about these false teachers and talk about how to test them, um, you know, and that's great and it's beneficial to us. But we also need to take a step back and test ourselves. And 1 John is great for this. It gives us many aspects in which we can look at ourselves and judge whether we are saved. It's great assurance to the new believer. They can see the fruit of their life, compare it to what First John tells them, and have that assurance that they have been regenerated, that they are now a child of God, um, a born one of the Father, and co-heirs with Christ. And that is absolutely wonderful. And it is true that if God is in us, he abides, his spirit is comfortable abiding in us, then that same love that he has towards his son and towards us will be present in our lives, and we will demonstrate it to the others. And it's not this ethereal, feel-good kind of love. We've already established that it is very tangible. It's, it's an action. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling, not predicated on our emotions or even our disposition towards him. But this love is something that is continually a part of his character. And that's the same love that we have to demonstrate as Christians. It's such a, a tangible thing that we should be able to see it in each other's lives and then in our lives introspectively. So I challenge you this week to just think about God's love. Uh, think about the sacrifice that was made, um, what it took God to restrain himself, because he did have the power to stop it. Uh, think about how the love for you has overridden his will to stop the suffering of his son. As we close today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we do thank you so much for that sacrifice that you have already made for us and the true and uh, original demonstration of your love towards us. God, while I was still sinning, while I was still up to my neck in sin, you stepped down and you touched me and you called me to you. And God, if there is anyone here this morning that has not had that experience yet, we do ask that you would touch their lives and call them to you. It is the most wonderful thing that any man can experience. We thank you for loving us the way that you did, the way that you do, in the midst of our sin, calling us out of that. And we ask you to be with us this week as we go into the world, and by your power we expand your kingdom and we demonstrate that love that you have for us. God, we ask that, that we would demonstrate that love fully and that 
we would have that attitude of self-sacrifice and that others around us would recognize that that is of you and that they would be called into your presence. God, we ask all of these things in your precious son's name. Amen. Y'all have a great week. We will see you next time.